Mighty Lord, we thank you that you have delivered into our hands your word, and that we have your word, that we are able to study it, to look to it, and to be instructed by it. We pray, Father, that you would be with the preaching of the word, that it might be in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that you would be with the hearing of the word, that that too might be in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray that you would give us grace as we consider the wife today. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would grant us much grace, that we might do your will according to your word. Intercede for us here by your Spirit, that in every way we might be illuminated. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. We're going to read it once more. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I'm not going to re-explain everything that we went over the last time we talked about the husband. This particular part of following true biblical reformation in the family follows the duties of the wife. But I do want to restate a couple of things just to be reminded. One, this is set in the edification of the body. When husbands and wives and children when families do what they are supposed to do, when they submit to one another in the right way, when they lead one another in the right way, the church is strengthened, society is strengthened, the family is strengthened, everybody is strengthened. So he begins, Paul, in writing this particular epistle, with submission to one another before God, and then from there he moves into the Christian family, which ultimately is completed in chapter 6 and verse 9, with children and masters and servants and so forth. Now, the contrast that he gives here, again, is between Christ and the church. The church has a particular relationship to Christ, and Christ has a particular relationship to the church. And in both of those things, the family unit made up of the husband and wife is set against the parallel of Christ and the church. Wives here are subject to their husbands as the church is subject to Christ. The argument then is posed as being interlaced between husbands and wives and Christ and the church through the whole passage. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't treat husbands first. He treats wives first. He's dealing with a hierarchy, and he's dealing with the subjection of inferiors to superiors. He's talking about the church in relationship to Christ, so he talks about wives in relationship to their husbands. Wives, in this way, are inferior to their head, their husband, which means they are in subjection to their husband. And the church, in that way, is inferior to Christ, which means the church is in subjection to Christ. So, wives are the most eminent of inferiors in the hierarchy, and so Paul deals with them first. Wives are to be subject to their husbands. Now, how do Christ and the church relate? Because this is the, we dealt with how husbands are like Christ, but here we have to talk about how Christ and the church relate 
because we're talking about wives, let's just be reminded a, a moment about Christ himself. He's the federal head of the church. As it talks about in verse 23, he is the head. He's the head of the church, the representative on behalf of the church. He governs the church, as we talked about, protects the church, preserves the church, provides for the church. Does all of those things and blesses the church. He is the savior of the church, as in verse 23. He loved the church in that he gives himself up for the church. So he has a sacrificial love to the church. He sanctifies the church by the word, as in verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now the church is subject to Christ, and it does two things. It submits to Christ, and in that submission respects Christ in all things. The church submits to Christ in all things, which is a necessary subjection, has to, because Christ is the head. The church is inferior to the head, but it also respects Christ in all things. It's not only necessary that the church does that, but it's also voluntary. The opposite of voluntary subjection would be rebellion. They would rebel against Christ. So there is a cleaving to Christ as so the wife leaves her family and cleaves to the husband. The church cleaves to Christ by leaving the world. Christ is the head. The church is the body. They become one flesh. So the husband and wife are one body, one flesh. They're not to be two individuals. They're to be one flesh in communion with each other before God. So now let's look and talk a little bit about an explanation of the subjugated wife or what that means to be in subjection to the husband. What is subjection? The definition or dictionary definition of this is to make as oneself undergo or endure the discipline and control of a superior. That's what it means to be in subjection. You're placing yourself under the discipline and control of a superior. To explain the type of wives' subjection to their husband, two commands are set down by Paul here. He says that wives are to be in subjection to their husbands, how? As unto the Lord that it be such a subjection as should be performed to Christ. So, everything that the wife does, she does as if she was performing it to Christ. As the church is subject to Christ, so wives are subject to Christ. And Christ is represented in the family by the husband. So there is a subjection to the husband in that way. Secondly, that it be such a subjection as the church performs unto Christ. So not only as it is under the Lord, the wife is supposed to submit to the husband or be in subjection to him as if it was Jesus himself, but she is to do it in a particular manner. She is to do it as if she is the church under Christ. And Paul says that the church is subject to Christ. How? In everything. That's what he says. The church is subject to Christ in everything. So there is a necessary subjection. The wife is inferior to her husband in respect to hierarchy and position. However, it's very interesting to me that God would curse Adam by declaring Eve's subjection, but desire to rule over her husband. He makes that part of the curse which makes this necessary subjection difficult because the wife desires to rule over her husband instead of be subject to her husband. I mean, no doubt Adam allowed the woman to take up his role in the garden instead of him fulfilling it. And she dealt with the serpent, as you remember. Adam didn't. He was supposed to. She became the representative on behalf of the family because Adam allowed that. So God made this part of the curse. So there is a necessary subjection that has to take place that has to be aware of not only the wife, but also with the husband. 
so that they both understand how that hierarchy is supposed to take place. But there's also a voluntary subjection. It has to be done voluntarily as well. William Gouge wrote an excellent work called Of Domestical Duties. And basically, as many would say, John Owen's book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, exhausts the death of Christ and explaining the atonement of Christ. So in many ways, Gouge's work really basically almost exhausts everything that you could talk about concerning the family. And he says in this voluntary subjection, a dutiful respect which inferiors that have people set over them by God is what is to take place. A dutiful respect. I liked that term. That's the kind of voluntary subjection that the wife has to the husband. That's why Paul says, submit yourselves to one another. Say it's voluntary. You have to do it. Submission is basically the same thing as saying, do all your duties unto those I have placed over you. That's what being subject is. So in the church, everyone is subject to one another, submitting themselves to one another, in the manner that Paul is demonstrating for the edification of the body. But in the family, the wife is subject to the husband in that way, submitting themselves with dutiful respect. The loving husband makes this a joy for the wife. I'm happy. I'm happy to submit myself to Christ. That doesn't mean that everything that I submit myself to Christ is easy, but I'm happy to do it because Christ is who he is. He is a joy to be subject to. The loving husband makes this a joy for the wife. The wife enjoys being subject to her husband. That's the way that she was designed. That's the way that she was created. You wouldn't use a blow dryer to blow the snow off your driveway. It wasn't designed for that. It's designed for something different. God has designed the husband and wife in a particular way. Christ makes serving him a joy to the church. The husband makes serving uh, before him by the wife a joy. If that harmony is there, a voluntary subjection, the necessary subjection is very easy. The role of the wife is that she has one husband that she follows, that God has placed over her. She has a faithful subjection to him, but only a subjection that she, that she is subject to the Lord. So anything that God would require of her, so, as the husband reiterates those things, she is required to follow those things. That's why Ephesians uh, 5.22, Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Other wives are not to submit to me, even though I am a husband to a wife. They are sub to submit to their own husbands. However she subjects herself to her husband, it must also be amiable in the same fashion as unto the Lord. So whatever she does before her husband is as if she's doing it before Christ. She not only serves her husband, but she serves him as if she was serving Christ. Now, not to misunderstand, it's not that her husband is some kind of God. That isn't the idea at all. But that she voluntarily submits herself to God through her husband. He is the conduit by which she submits herself to Christ. She necessarily submits to him as a superior placed over her by God. Whatever God would approve of, so she submits to. She never submits voluntarily to ungodly actions or ungodly directions. There are many believing women who are married to unbelieving husbands who would like them to not pray, who would like them to not teach their children the Bible. But she is not to submit to ungodly directions. She is always to submit to godly directions. She always submits voluntarily to godly actions and affections. Wives who don't submit themselves to their husbands are in rebellion against God, which is 
why Paul makes this so emphatic that this mystery between a husband and a wife is just like Christ and the church. The way they relate, relate so the husband and wife relate. So that's the, the basic teaching of subjection of the wife to the husband, according to Ephesians 5.22 to 33. So I only want to pull a couple of things out of this text, because really, to deal with a husband and to deal with a wife in the way that we'd really like to do it in all the different areas that we could actually go over with the family, we could easily deal with the family for an entire year's worth of sermons. But in just touching what we so desire in terms of reformation of the family, and just having the basic principles of what we should be doing, spurring us on to those things, I'm only going to touch on a couple of things here that we're going to pull out of Ephesians 5 for the wife. Here's the first. There's, there's three things that we're going to talk about. Here's the first one. The duties of the wife are seen in her subjection to her husband as unto the Lord. If we grasp that particular aspect of what Paul is talking about, families would be transformed. The subjection which is required of a wife to her husband implies two important things. First, she has to acknowledge that her husband is, who, is her superior. If she doesn't acknowledge that, the subjection is never going to happen. The second thing that has to happen is that she has to respect him as the superior. I mean, people could be in a work environment where they hate their boss. And not only they're recognizing that he's the boss or she's the boss, whoever. Yet, they might not be in subjection to the boss because they hate the boss. It's not done out of a desire of voluntary respect to the boss. The acknowledgement of the husband's superiority is twofold, general and particular. It's general in that the wife should have a really good idea as to who husbands are and what husbands do. In general, they should understand that not only in their family should the husband act a certain way, but in other families, she should be able to point out based on the word what the husband is or isn't doing. So in general, she has to have an acknowledgement of how husbandry works overall for her to be in subjection to it. Because if she doesn't, then she won't know what to do. She has to understand that first. Secondly, she has to have an acknowledgement of that particularly of her own husband. Right? Think about the titles and names alone of the husband. The titles and names whereby a husband is set forth implies a superiority, and an authority in him as Lord. 1 Peter 3, 6. Lord. Master. In Esther 1, 17, the husband is called a guide. In Proverbs 2, 17, he's called the head, just as in Ephesians 5. In 1 Corinthians 11:3, he's called the image and glory of God. 1 Corinthians 11, 7. For a husband represents Christ and a wife the church. So these relationships work that way. It's okay that he's Lord, Master, Guide, Head, and Image and Glory of God. Because he's been designed in a certain way. So a husband represents Christ and the wife the church in that way. And she has to acknowledge that. She has to see, respect, and understand that he is her superior in every way in that manner. Then, such an acknowledgement of that has to become outward. It has to be seen. Gouge says, a wife's outward reverence towards her husband is a manifestation of her inward due respect of him. So what she does outwardly determines what she thinks of her husband and what she thinks of her role before the husband. The intent of the heart, the inward disposition that a wife has, can't be discerned simply in and of itself. We can't look into the heart of a wife. We have to see the outward affection of that, the outward demonstration of that, based on her understanding of what it means that he is her superior. 
So the husband has to know his wife's good affections towards him, and it's very important that she manifests the same by her outward reverence. What does she do? She has a reverent gesture towards him in every way. 1 Peter 3, 1-2 says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without the word may be won by how? The conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct behavior accompanied by fear. So there's a particular manner in which the wife, every wife, is to carry themselves before the husband. They have a willingness to be under him and ruled by him. They have a desire to honor him. They desire to honor him in her actions, even the way that she dresses before others. You, you think about people that you see and women that dress the way they do, maybe provocatively in various places that you might visit, whether it's work or the mall or the store or whatever, and you ask yourself, what in the world is she thinking about the manner in which she portrays her union with her husband, and what in the world is he thinking? Even just the very way that she dresses before him, as we'll talk about in a moment, the way Peter explains it, there's a, a reverent gesture just about the way that she carries himself, because she is a representative of the husband in that way. Even the way that she talks, her speech, the way that she communicates who he is to her in front of others or in front of others with him, whether he's with her or not. 1 Corinthians 14.35 says, And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. There's a particular manner in which they relate even by speech, even the way that when you're sitting in church, for example, a wife, if they want to learn something, Paul says, ask your husbands at home. There's a certain way that you communicate with your husband. There's a, a whole scriptural doctrine of biblical husband and wife communication in the way that she is supposed to carry herself in front of others. In church, Paul says, she's to be quiet. And if she wants to learn something, she asks her husband at home. So that carries off in the way that she deals with her husband in the workplace. She visits him or whether she goes out to a restaurant with them or the mall or whatsoever. I'm not saying that she has to be silent in all of those places. I'm just saying that there is a manner in which the Bible gives us that husbands and wives communicate together based on the wife's understanding of subjection to the husband. First Peter 3, 5 and 6 says, For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now that's important because of what Peter says. He's not a dictator, the husband. He's not a tyrant. So you're not afraid to be submissive to him. Believing wives married to unbelieving husbands, that might be the case. But with a loving husband, he's not a dictator, he's not a tyrant. He was designed in a certain way so that they're adorned, the wife, with submission, not out of terror, but out of enjoyment. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And it doesn't take very long, really, to discern how a husband is treating his wife by just how the wife acts with the husband, how she talks with others, demonstrates the husband's faithfulness in loving her as he should. One of the characteristics the scripture places forth on the wife in the way that she relates to her husband is a meek and quiet spirit that's characteristic or should be characteristic of every wife. First Peter 3 3 and 4, just before these verses, it says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Arranging of the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. When we think about things that God thinks are precious, one of those things is the wife's demeanor towards her husband being gentle and of a quiet spirit. Not everybody's like that. Sometimes that has to be cultivated. 
But that's what God requires. And in such a disposition is demonstrated, it's not that they're so interested in the way that they adorn themselves outwardly, they're more interested in the way that their hearts are adorned. For that not only pleases God, but would create a harmonious existence with their husband. And you have to remember, I just have to kind of add this in, because in the day that we live in, remember why we wear clothes, why we have things like that. It's because of the fall. So we shouldn't be so interested in how we adorn ourselves outwardly. We should be far more interested in how we adorn ourselves inwardly. It's like when Paul says, bodily exercise profits little. It doesn't mean that it doesn't profit at all, but the outward is not as important as the inward. Might we be obsessed with our hearts rather than things that are outward? So we want to remember that as the wife does all of these things, as she acts like a wife, she's doing these things as unto the Lord. That's how these duties happen. So that's the first thing that we have to remember. These are the things that God requires basically, and that we do them as if they're done unto the Lord. That's the wife's duty. Second thing, the duties of the wife comprise her scriptural station before her husband as unto the Lord. So the wife not only has a particular subjection to the, to the husband, but also has particular duties before the husband as unto the Lord. She does them as if she was serving Christ. And I think probably one of the greatest lists of these things is Proverbs 31 in dealing with the wife of noble character. And I'm just going to move basically through this just so that you can have a refreshed idea about what Proverbs 31 is saying. And interestingly enough, it was told to the king by his mother. Who would know best? Proverbs 31, 10 to 31. And I'm just going to look at them individually. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. There's a moral quality about verse 12. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Her territory is her home. Titus 2, 3 and 5 reiterates what Proverbs 31 talks about. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So that's her territory. Her primary territory is how she conducts herself around the home. That's her primary duty. And she's very industrious according to Proverbs 31, and what she does. Verse 13, she seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. Verse 14, she is like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. Verse 15, she also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. And I find that very interesting because she has servants to do things. She gets up earlier than they do to provide for her whole house, that her whole house is in order under her direction, even her servants. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. So she's very business savvy. She's very industrious in those verses. She's strong in every sphere of her life, such as in verse 17, when it says, she girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. In verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp doesn't go out by night. She's always industrious. She continues to be industrious. Verse 19, she stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. She's constantly about that industrious work. She's also very mindful of every area of her home. Verse 27, she watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Verse 21, she is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. So it really doesn't matter what season it is, she's on top of everything. Verse 22, she makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. 
That in particular, like Lydia in the New Testament, the seller of purple cloth, she's, she's business savvy, a woman of business in that way. And the husband, if you want to think of it this way, the wife should have such a profound effect on her husband by doing these things that her husband, away from the home, is part of the home, magnified to other people. So even though she's in subjection to the husband, even though that's the case, she's such, she has such an effect on her husband that when he is out, he's like a light of what the wife has done in the home on him, through him, for him. The husband is part of the home, a wife of the home. And through her husband and the work she accomplishes, he is respected. That's a kind of an amazing thing. Verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. I think that's kind of interesting the way that, it, that it's placed that way. He doesn't say the husband is there in the gates and he says all great stuff about her. They're going to say that in a minute. But here it says, her husband is known in the gates. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. She's got everything done in her home. She's everything done for her husband. And she even has time to go and do business stuff, which is an amazing thing. Proverbs also says that she's spiritually minded in her work. Very spiritually minded about everything she does. Listen to what she does in verse 20. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She has this desire to not only supply everything that her husband needs and her house needs, but she's even now doing alms work to the poor. Verse 25. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come, which is an eschatological verse. Even in, when she gets rewarded for all of these things, Strength and honor are going to be given to her. Verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. The manner that she carries herself. She's wise in what she does, in everything. She's also very respected for her diligence and capability. Not only by her husband, but I think this is an amazing verse, by her children. Verse 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her children do that. Her children are not rebellious. Her children are not wayward. Her children rise up and say, my mom is the best thing. They call her blessed. And in that verse, her husband also, and he praises her. And listen to what he says in verse 29. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. So the husband and the children respect her for her diligence. And shame will be brought on every husband who does not so verbally and outwardly express such a kindness and respect to his wife. Unless the wife obviously is in some great sin or neglect. But barring that, the husband should be verbally affirming how awesome and great his wife is. Proverbs says, she is so awesome and great. Even her children know how awesome and great she is in God's eyes. She's blessed of God. Not that she's blessing them. She is blessed. God is blessing her because of who she is. And then the commentary is given in verse 30. Charm is deceitful. And beauty is passing. Lots of women are engaged in that. They want to look good. They want to dress up nice. But that stuff is passing. Instead, but a woman who fears the Lord... She shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. How does her works praise her? The husband is verbally praising her in the gates. She doesn't go to the gates and affirm herself. She doesn't have to. Just like Jesus says, why are you asking me? Go ask those who heard. So in the same way, the, the wife doesn't say, hey, I'm great. I do all these great things. She doesn't even have to say, go listen to my husband because the husband is out there saying, Many daughters have done well, but you exceed them all. My wife is great. He doesn't even say that to her. He says that to those people at the gates. That's where her husband works, at least in this passage. And he's praising her there. The husband boasts scripturally of his industrious wife. Let him supply her with everything she needs and everything that she has to do to accomplish her tasks. 
and he will, as a result, in her industriousness, be praised by him, even in the gates. Everything she does is unto the Lord. Everything she does is by way of fear of the Lord. Listen to the commentary again. But a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. So you have a spiritually minded wife going about all the duties of the wife and she's going to be praised by not only the members of the household, but the husband is going to be praising her even in the gates. Why? Because she's minding what the Lord has for her. She's minding what the husband has for her as a representative on behalf of Christ. The wife, in all of these respects, is what Genesis calls a help meet. That's what a wife is. Without the wife, personally for me, without a wife, it would be impossible for me to complete in any way the cultural mandate that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. I mean, interestingly enough, he didn't just give it to Adam, he gave it to them, the husband and the wife. Without the wife, the initial cultural mandate to have dominion over the earth would be impossible. But the wife has to have a like-mindedness to the things that the husband desires for the cultural mandate to be successfully enacted. They have to be on the same page. They have to be of the same mind. Dictatorship by the husband to the wife will always lead to an exasperated wife. Remember, husbands don't need slaves. They need helpmates. They need wives who are stationed accordingly and follow the wise and loving leadership of their husbands. Wise leadership will create mutual harmony because those in subjection will desire to be so and those that lead will be leading well. Thirdly, the neglect of her duties demonstrates rebellion against her husband as unto the Lord and demonstrates she despises her position. For a wife to give up her duties or never take up her duties as an industrious wife falls under one of four categories. We have four choices here. First, maybe she has a wrong conception of what Christ requires as a wife. She doesn't know what to do or has never been taught God's will for the wife. That might be the case. So she doesn't know. Second, she's married to an unbeliever. And her duties are hindered. Or she neglects them just for the peace in the home. Or, in her mind, safety. Because unbelieving husbands might find her spiritual leadership appalling, so they neglect it for the sake of peace. That might be the case. I'm not saying that these things are right. Ignorance is not right, and neglecting these things isn't right. But that's just, these are just possible scenarios. Thirdly, her husband is exasperating her, and she gives up her duties. Unwise and uncaring husbands or wrongly motivated husbands can easily exasperate their wives into non-action. The wife loses respect for the husband, and she becomes physically and emotionally distant, and her duties as a wife will suffer as a result. Fourthly, the wife simply doesn't approve of God's plan for the wife and remains in open rebellion against him, and that's really what leads to feminism. And that whole movement today, that men and women are created equal, a woman can be just as good as a man in anything, but what they're they're forgetting, they're forgetting the basics. They're forgetting that before the fall, God had set up a hierarchy. Innocence, purity, holiness, Adam was the head. Adam named Eve as he named the animals. He has superiority over the wife. And feminism attempts to eradicate that authority and set up an equality that God had never designed. God has designed the husband and the wife for particular duties. If wifely duties are given up, it must only be a result of a sure understanding of God's word that it would not be becoming the wife to do it. In other words, the wife should be sure, being truly informed by God's word, that which she refuses to do at her husband's command is forbidden by God. Otherwise... In any duty, in everything, she is bound to the duty. I'm going to use a stupid example, but I want you to really understand the point. 
If the husband, in whatever hidden agenda he has, says to the wife, I want you to jump for me right now, she is to do it, unless she can find scriptural warrant not to do it. She's bound to do it based on his authority before Christ. Now, I know that's a stupid example. Husbands don't go around just saying to the wife in the middle of the jump. But that's not the idea. For example, when the three visitors came to Abraham, he said to his wife, Sarah, quickly, right now, go and do this. Make the bread for them. Promptly, she went and did it. That's the idea. The wife must maintain that duty to the husband is duty to Christ. Christ is speaking through the husband in these things. That's why Paul says, in everything. It has to be remembered that such a duty is done either joyfully as a result of the husband's amiableness in the eyes of the wife, or with grief as a result of being married to a fool. No doubt, wives have married fools for husbands sometimes, and the fools have to get over certain things. But the wife is bound to that husband and holds that duty as if it is Christ himself. So, the scriptural station of the wife is that she's in subjection to the husband. Secondly, she has duties that she performs before the husband. And thirdly, neglect of those duties, unless they're scripturally evident to be wrong, is rebellion. So we take this and we apply it to the wives here today. As a wife, you have to ask yourself, how are you subject to your husband as to the Lord? Think about it in that capacity. You can't just think about it materially. I love my husband, thus I love to please him. That isn't even enough. It has to be, I love serving my husband because I'm serving Christ. It's hard when you as a wife have to look into the face of your husband and you have to see Christ there. Because we are not Christ. We're representative of that. But we aren't. He's perfect in every way. For all eternity, when we go to heaven, do you know what we're going to be doing? We're going to be looking at the face of Christ. We're going to be seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to be doing. So imagine that now you have to look at us and see Christ now. You have to see Christ in us. You have to do what Hebrews 11 does. Hebrews 11 doesn't list all of Noah's sins. Hebrews 11 doesn't list all of Samson's sins. Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, filters all of those great people of faith. Filters them so we only see the good. All the good things that they did. That's hard for the wife, but the wife really has to do that with the husband. She has to look at him and see, he's my, he's my head. I've been designed a certain way before God. I've been subjection to him. He's asked me to do this. I need to do it. Imagine, for example, that your husband is exasperating and consistently demonstrates to you your habitual sins. All the time. Over and over. Now, rightfully, he should be helping you overcome those sins as Christ would help the church. Remember, it's a parallel. That's what Jesus does but he must be wise in doing so. Yet, it's your duty as Christ commands to yield meekly to your husband's critique. That reflects 1 Peter 3, a gentle and quiet spirit. That's not a lackey. That's not what you're to be. But it is a gentle and quiet spirit. It'll be hard to subject yourself to a husband if you regard him as a, a tyrant or a dictator or a fool, because that's what feminism does. You're trying to set up a tyrant over us. Well, that's, that's not what God is doing. What God is doing is we have a hierarchy. We have design. And design dictates duty. You have to first take hold that your husband requires your respect for nothing that he's done except that he's stationed there as your head, as Christ is head of the church. That's the first reason why wives do anything before their husband. And it would be easy to subject yourself to him if he's loving, wise, and faithful and all of those things. All those things that we talked about the last time we talked about the husband. Imagine if you, you have a husband 
that loves you as Christ loves the church, the wife of noble character has absolutely no problem in following such a husband. No qualms with a husband that acts like that. As the church is in love with Christ, so the wife is going to love her husband. And the love of the wife who is cared for by the husband that resembles Christ will be ready to subject herself to him as she is designed to do. Wives are designed in such a way that in such mutual circumstances there's a cultivated desire. It's a desire that's cultivated to subject themselves to their husbands. But there's no grading on a curve with easy or hard things that becomes the duty of a wife or even the husband. I mean, it's a very, we have, as husbands, the ultimate mandate. We have to love our wives as Christ loved the church, which in and of itself is all, is all an impossibility. But that's what the hierarchy for us is set up. Yet the wife, in the same way, is still to fulfill their role as if they were serving Christ, regardless of how loving or unloving the husband acts to you. It's just for the fact that he's a husband that you regard him as such and respect him as such. So you have to... It would, it would be best for you to take time to consider how you react to your relationship with your husband. And you have to ask some of the hard questions. Are you the model wife? Would he call you the wife of noble character or the industrious wife? Would he call you the wife of noble character in front of other people? Would, do others know? Would others know that you are a wife of noble character or an industrious wife as a result of him praising you at the gates? So much depends on your role as wives and, and as mothers in the church. As I said right in the very beginning, the foundations of the church are strengthened by your roles and, and how you do those roles. Strengthen society in the way that you teach your children and raise them up. And they go out and affect society in a certain way. Instead of focusing in on your husband's weaknesses, how he doesn't do this, how I wish he, how I wish he'd pick up his socks, how I wish he would do this and that. And the, be first to think about what you are doing yourself. Does your husband safely trust you with everything? He goes away, he knows everything is going to be taken care of. As a wife, you have to ask the question, how are you fulfilling your duties? Everybody's a sinner. We understand that. We're all sinners. We're all fallen. But Scripture presses our roles to cause us to consider how well we accomplish what God desires us to do. We can't simply say, which is the common expression all of the time, well, you know, I fail, but I'll try. Nowhere in the Word do the Scriptures ever give Christians that option. Ever. Not for anything. And... As a minister, I hate to hear that. Because really, it's just an excuse. It's a way to kind of overcome. How do I know? I've said it myself. We have to not say that. You as wives have to not think, oh, well, you know, this is just too difficult. I can't do it. You have to consider what is most important. And for the wife, the primary duty of overseeing everything for the cultural mandate, for the good of the husband. Think of it that way. The husband has been set up with you so that he can accomplish what God's will is for him, regardless of what his vocation is. That cultural mandate to be a spiritual influence in whatever sphere he's in, he needs your help to do that. That's why I said I cannot do it alone. I have to have the wife of noble character next to me to be able to fulfill the cultural mandate. And I can't emphasize that enough. You have to consider what's most important. For the wife, the household on behalf of her husband is most important scripturally. Whatever else may be hanging over your head, nothing is more important to the wife than fulfilling her responsibilities for her husband and to her home as, Paul says, unto the Lord. Other people, other activities... Other business is never your first priority, ever. At no time, listen, at no time is pleasing others ever more important than what is pleasing to your husband. Ever. Never. 
at no time is accomplishing works for others ever more important than accomplishing all that is required of you by your husband. Ever. Outside the home in general is a far third or fourth in the primary duties of the wife. She is to hear her husband as if Christ is speaking to her. Unless he's telling her something that's just sinful or wrong. If, but if he's not, even if it's as stupid as, I need you to go in the middle of the room and jump for me once. The wife is on that. Not even in your local church, not even is that more important than the duties that the husband requires of you, providentially given to you by Christ. Single people, single people have the ability to serve the Lord only. There's nobody above them. Right? A 30-year-old single male living out you know, in his own apartment, working at his job, going to church. He has no hierarchy over him other than the officers in the church. All he has to do is serve Christ. We have a different providence given to us. We're husbands and wives. And as a result of that, the wives attend to the husbands as unto the Lord, and husbands love their wives so. When your husband gives you a duty to perform... That's not against the word or any inferences from the word. You are on it as the industrious wife. Neglect of that would be sin. It's against the commandments for wives to respect their husbands and to be subject to them to neglect that. You can't cook? Go learn. You can't sew? Go learn. Whatever it is that he needs you to do, go learn it. That's what the wife of noble character does. She's industrious in that way. She's so industrious, she puts most husbands to shame. She's not only taking care of everything, but she's also a businesswoman. She looks the part, plays the... She's, it's an amazing thing, because she's up before dawn taking care of all even the servants of the house. Whatever needs to be done, learn to do it or do it. Is the church ever saddened? Think about it. Is the church ever saddened by Christ's commands? Never. They might be hard, but they're not saddened by them. Not for the regenerate Christian. Is the wife saddened at her husband's commands? Not if she's dealt with in love. Yet even simply upon the duty she accomplishes it, it must be done. She's not saddened by that. That's how she was designed. All that is owed by the husband to the wife will enhance and cultivate as they live in scriptural harmony with one another in their respective roles. There's a lot. Going through this, there's a lot of stuff that husbands and wives have to do. Even in just reading a couple of books that I've been reading, there's a lot of stuff, things I've never thought about before. There's lots of stuff that we have to do before God as just husbands and wives. But providentially, God has placed us in those roles. So, take today, take this week as a wife. How are you willfully neglecting your duties or fulfilling your duties? Are you respectful or are you disrespectful to your husband? Are you following his wishes? Are you not following his wishes? Among other means, God says this, among other means of maintaining an inward loving affection between man and wife, outward mutual peace and agreement is one of the principles. Being on the same page. Are you in agreement with him in everything? And if not in everything, then at least subject to him respectfully. Does he know you're subject to him respectfully? Are you conscious of his role as Christ? And an easy way of assessing whether the relationship between the husband and wife is really going the way that it should, whether it's really scriptural, is whether or not the husband praises his wife at the gates. Now, that would be a scary question to ask your husband. Christ boasts of his church. Is the husband so satisfied with you as a wife that he praises you at the gates? Reflection is worth its weight in gold for every wife that takes the basics of what Paul is saying in Ephesians and what we just basically went through in Proverbs. It's worth its weight in gold for the family, for the church, for society. And we have to remember that none of this at all, none of it, is accomplishable except by Christ's grace. It can't happen. The husband can't love his wife. 
The wife cannot be scripturally subject to and have respect for her husband. Can't, can't do it without grace, without Christ's help. That's why he says, I'm going to paraphrase it too in a very loose paraphrase, when Jesus says, it is a stupid thing that I'm ready to hand out the Holy Spirit to everybody who asks him and they don't ask for it. It's a crazy thing. Why don't they? We should understand that everything, husbands and wives included, everything that's done through the grace of Christ. You can do nothing without me. Nothing is nothing. The importance of such matters can be easily weighed in our own hearts as to how much we pray about being a good wife or pray about being a good husband or pray for our husband that he would be a good husband or pray for our wife that she would be a good wife. How much, how much of our prayer life surrounds that? That will just demonstrate to us the importance of it or how much we think it's important. But these are the very basics. As I said, maybe in the future we'll have a whole series on the, on the wife and husband and all the, the immensity of things that are required of us. But at the very least, to press us to study, the basic principles are set forth for the husband and wife in Ephesians 5, 22-33. And next week, we'll deal with the parents. The parents' duty over their children. May God bless his word and our attempts and our strivings to reform our families in the way that God would so desire us to act and behave. Let's pray. Mighty Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy that you pour out to us. Lord, even in just moving through the material in this sermon, it's just so brief and, and so basic. We're not able to go into every single one of these points and all of the other things that husbands and wives are to do and the duties of the wife to the husband. And yet, Lord, even on this basic level, I pray that you would help the wives that we have, that they might, O oh God, see amazingly, see us as Christ in terms of our representativeship, our federal headship before you, that as we, as loving husbands, as wise husbands, as caring husbands over our household, would require things of our wife, that they would see that these are in the best interest of our family, and that they would, O oh God, do them as if they were hearing Christ's voice. Let it be as we're illuminated by the word in these things, and reminded of these things that maybe we already knew, that we would put them into practice in a way that would be glorifying to you and glorifying in our families. And we so pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.